Welcome to UpToDate Talk. I'm Dr. April Eichler, a neurologist and senior deputy editor at UpToDate. For this edition, I'm joined by Dr. Carol Weitzman to discuss new data on the prevalence of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders in school-aged children. Dr. Weitzman is professor of pediatrics and director of the Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics Program at the Yale University School of Medicine. We'll be talking about a paper by Dr. Philip May and colleagues entitled Prevalence of Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorders in Four U.S. Communities, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in February 2018. Thanks so much for joining me, Dr. Weitzman. It's my pleasure. Let's begin by reviewing the spectrum of abnormalities that can be seen with alcohol exposure. What are the classic findings? So there are four really major areas that we think about when we look at children who may have had significant prenatal alcohol exposure. The first is something that many people are familiar with, and that is the classic facial dysmorphology, which consists of the eyes are smaller, so small palpebral fissures, an elongated philtrum, and a thin upper lip. The central portion of what really affects children the most who have had prenatal alcohol exposure are neurobehavioral and neurodevelopmental findings that are across a wide range of domains. So that includes things like impaired neurocognitive functioning, problems in self-regulation, and problems in adaptive functioning. And then the other two areas that we often see are that children may have growth abnormalities and there may be structural brain abnormalities. So they may have microcephaly or upon imaging, you may see abnormalities there too. For most kids, I will say, you don't usually see all of these findings. Sometimes you do, and those are the children who meet criteria for full fetal alcohol syndrome. But the more common scenario is actually that you only see some of those findings. Now, what is known about the mechanism of alcohol toxicity on the developing fetus? So what's really striking is that alcohol or ethanol and its metabolite via alcohol dehydrogenase, and that is acetaldehyde, have very, very profound effects on fetal development in a number of different ways. So some of these mechanisms include oxidative stress, and this disrupts DNA and protein synthesis. Alcohol and acetaldehyde can actually cause cell death and disrupt the development of nerve cells. There can be inhibition of cell migration and disruption of cellular differentiation and growth. And then there's also modification of the intermediary metabolism of carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. So it's remarkable how significant effect alcohol can have on many aspects of brain development. And when we translate that to humans, do we know how much alcohol exposure is necessary to cause problems? Has a safe threshold been established? So, you know, the very simple answer to that is no, that there is no safe threshold. And the reason for that is a couple of different things. First of all, there are so many different factors that will really affect how much alcohol the baby is actually seeing. So that has to do with the genetics of the baby, the genetics of the mother, the amount of alcohol the mother consumed, the size of the mother, so that we um, have some sense of how quickly she is able to metabolize that, um, nutritional status of the mother, age, all of these things will have an effect on how much alcohol the baby is actually seeing. So that somebody 
who drinks comparable amounts of alcohol, the fetus may see and experience very different amounts of alcohol presented to them. The other thing that sometimes people ask is that, you know, are there certain parts of the pregnancy where it's safer than others to be consuming alcohol? And the answer to that is also no, that we do know that the first trimester is likely the most vulnerable period. That's when most organ formation occurs. That's when you see things like renal, cardiac, craniofacial development. It's the period of time that you will see facial features, but it doesn't mean that the other trimesters aren't incredibly important to fetal development, especially things like growth, weight gain, and brain development. So there's no safe amount and there's no safe period during pregnancy that it is safe to consume alcohol. So with this in mind, and based on the fact that neurobehavioral problems are quite common in school-aged children with many potential causes, how do you go about recognizing fetal alcohol spectrum disorders in the clinic? It's a great question. So one of the biggest issues that exists is that we just don't ask enough, and we don't ask in detail enough, so that we often are left not knowing whether there was alcohol that was consumed during pregnancy. And yes, the kind of behavioral phenotype that one can see in the fetal alcohol spectrum disorders is very much overlapping with other neurodevelopmental problems. So the cornerstone, first of all, is just getting that good history and making sure that we're actually thinking about it. Because I think oftentimes uh, many clinicians don't even consider that this might be a possibility. Okay, so that leads us nicely to the study that we're going to talk a little bit more about today, um, which really is a remarkable study by Dr. May and colleagues. It's a multi-center, multi-year study that was aimed at defining the the prevalence of these disorders across multiple communities in the U.S. They used a method called active case ascertainment in part to get around these difficulties in having some level of certainty in in the diagnosis. Can you explain what this study entailed and and what was involved. Yeah, sure. So I think this is an absolutely really remarkable study, quite honestly, and took the work of a tremendous team of clinicians who were working together to really think in a very careful methodologic way to try to get an idea around kind of population estimates of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So In this study, what active case ascertainment really does is it looks at kind of community and population data rather than just including people in a study who present to a clinic and or who are part of an existing registry. And with all of those kinds of studies, you really will just see who kind of is in your registry or who signs up for your study. So you're kind of at risk for some kinds of selection bias. I would say this is what you would call a go out and find them kind of study, which is so much more labor intensive and costly than the other types of studies, which are more of these passive ascertainment studies. And how was the diagnosis of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders made in these communities? Boy, they had their work cut out for them. That's what I'll first say. They looked in four different communities across the United States, in the Rocky Mountains, the Midwest, the Southeast, and the Pacific Southwest. With a sample of these children, they did full dysmorphology exams. With a sample of children, they did full neurodevelopmental assessments. They interviewed parents, and they were very, very cautious about the way they did this and got um, good histories and classified them based on established criteria. Okay. And what did they find in terms of the prevalence? 
So first of all, in all of the classrooms that they had sampled, there were about 13,000 children in those classrooms. So this is a very big sample. And about 6,000 of those children were screened on growth or development or both. So they found that 222 children were classified with a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And of these children, 27 actually met criteria for fetal alcohol syndrome. So here are some of the major take-home points. Number one is only two of these 222 children had actually been diagnosed previously with a disorder, although many of the parents and the guardians were very much aware of the learning and behavioral challenges facing their children. They just had never been diagnosed before. So that's number one. Number two is when you looked at the estimates, the conservative estimates, basically suggested that between one and 5% of children had a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And that when you looked at the weighted estimates, so the less conservative, between three and up to almost 10% of children qualified for a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So these numbers are significantly higher than anything that's been published in the past. Now, were there any major limitations in the methods used that we should be aware of? I would say not necessarily major limitations, but with a study of this magnitude, they did have to obtain consent from parents for their children to participate in the study. And on average across sites, the participation rates ranged from about 37 to about 93%, and approximately 60% of eligible children were consented by their parents to participate. Now, the fact that the vast majority of the kids Uh, had known developmental abnormalities, but hadn't previously been labeled as fetal alcohol syndrome disorder, that seemed like a really striking finding. Was that surprising to you? Unfortunately, it was not. And there's a number of reasons for this. Number one is, and I think really the most important one, is that there really still is tremendous stigma in reporting alcohol use during pregnancy. And mothers often feel shame and guilt, and they are often made to feel shame and guilt. So it often just goes unnoted. Number two is there is still a very widespread belief amongst clinicians that making the diagnosis is really not going to add anything to a child's clinical care and to the services that they receive, and that it's only going to make parents feel badly and may have a really negative effect on a clinician-patient relationship. In some places, if a child is diagnosed with a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, there is still mandatory reporting to Child Protective Services. So there's tremendous disincentive to ask because no one really would want to necessarily report unless the child is really at risk for ongoing abuse or neglect. So there's a lot of things, I think, that are still operating that make people not really do the job of screening. And because of the strong overlap with other neurodevelopmental disorders, people often say, I'm not really sure there's any value to this. Okay, but this study certainly makes clear that it remains a prevalent problem even in this day and age. What can we as a medical community be doing to make headway on this issue? So number one is when we look at things like the rates of binge drinking in women of childbearing age, we have made really very little dent in this over time. 
So there are still very, very high percentages of women of childbearing age who report binge drinking in the past 12 months, anywhere from 14 to 37 percent of women. So we need to continue to do so much more educating women. And as we know, about 50 percent of pregnancies in this country are unplanned. So there are a lot of women who are binge drinking who may be pregnant and don't know it already. In addition, we just need to continue to step up our efforts for screening for prenatal alcohol exposure by OBGYNs, by pediatricians, by other clinicians who come at family doctors, who come in contact with adolescents and with women of childbearing age and with pregnant women. And we need to have more communication and better communication. I can tell you on the pediatric side, we just often don't hear enough from our OBGYNs about screenings that were done. So we need to have a better system for communication. We need to have more aggressive treatment of women with alcohol use during pregnancy and during childbearing ages. And quite honestly, we just need to train clinicians better in how to talk about these very sensitive, stigmatizing subjects in a way that is not judgmental and that really applauds women for stepping forward and reporting prenatal alcohol use. And for listeners who would like more information on this topic, the study is highlighted on our What's New in Pediatrics page on the UpToDate website. Thanks so much for speaking with me about this important topic, Dr. Weitzman. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. We appreciate your feedback. Please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.